One in 18 New Zealanders has a family trust, a rate far higher than any other comparable country. The Law Commission is currently reviewing the legislation surrounding such trusts. And this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, Penny Mackay, has been looking into whether such financial options to minimise tax are still acceptable. New Zealanders are big fans of family trusts. We now know that we have at least 250,000 and those are only the trusts that file financial returns with the Inland Revenue. In fact, the Law Commission suspects there may be as many as 400,000 family trusts. 72 of New Zealand's 122 MPs have one. The Law Commissioner, George Tanner QC, says New Zealand's rate is way ahead of other similar countries. In New Zealand we have one trust for every 18 people. In Australia it's one trust for every 34. In Canada it's one for every 148. In the United Kingdom it's one for every 294 people. But why do New Zealanders have such a love affair with family trusts? George Tanner says the flirtation began during the period estate duty applied. It became a matter of great concern, not just to well-to-do New Zealanders, but to middle-income New Zealanders to protect their assets from the 40% estate duty that was levied on them on their death. And the love affair bloomed when tax rates rose. There was a big spike between 2000 and 2009 in the number of, of trusts that uh, were created in New Zealand when the tax rates leapt up to 39 cents. Suddenly it became very attractive to put your income earning assets into a trust and have your tax reduced to the trustee's rate of 33 cents in the dollar rather than 39. A family trust allows people to keep their assets at a legal distance. That protects them from business creditors, helps minimise their tax obligations and allows them to apply for state assistance. But how do they work? Allow me to introduce you to Jim and Mary Bloggs. They start a new business, Bloggs Biscuits, and on the advice of their accountant, form a family trust. Ronette Druskovich from the Wellington law firm Rainey Collins explains what that means. They move their assets into a trust, and the trust is a different entity than, than they themselves are. The so blogs example, appoint trustees to administer the operations of the trust, typically the blogs themselves and an independent trustee, their lawyer, accountant or a professional trustee. The beneficiaries of the trust, those who stand to gain from what is put in it or what it earns, are likely to be the blogs and their children. The blogs have borrowed money to start up their biscuit company and they place their house and a couple of rental properties in the trust. That move protects those assets should Bloggs Biscuits fail. If that occurs and you have a whole lot of assets in your own name, then it's quite easy for the person who lent you the money to um, get your assets. Whereas if they're in a trust, then they're not your assets any longer, so therefore they're not open to uh, creditors in the same way. Protecting assets from creditors is one of the most common reasons for forming a trust. Janet Zakoa is an Auckland accountant and a professional trustee.
I met her in the lobby of a Wellington hotel, where she explained why she thinks it's so important to put assets at a legal distance. A New Zealander who had a trust. It was a business that occurred in Australia. It went belly up for employee reasons that had nothing to do with the directors. But at the end of the day, the directors' assets and their reputation and business was on the line. One director lost everything. The other director protected his assets here in New Zealand because he had a trust. This man put his family home in a trust for similar reasons. We've been in retailing for many years and in the different places we've been, of course, we've had commercial leases. When you have these leases, you are tied into uh, paying the landlord for as long um, as that lease term goes on. At times, of course, if you sell it, you are still responsible for the lease. Somebody else could come in and not pay the rent and then the landlord can come to you for the money. But there are many other reasons people form trusts. Yeah, uh, a trim latte mm -hmm. and a long black decaf. Over coffee, this woman explains how her family used the powers of a trust. My father had passed away and he didn't have a will because it was unexpected. And so our biggest worry was that, you know, would we have people come along and say, well, you know, your dad said that he was going to give me this. And so without letting any family secrets <laughs> out, who did you think well, might come along and lay claim to the house? Probably my dad's brother, and he also has um, a, a daughter from a prior relationship. So we weren't sure if that was going to happen. And who was made a beneficiary? So it was my mother that was made the beneficiary. About 10 years ago, an amendment to the Property Relationships Act was passed. Given that 30% of New Zealanders of marriageable age remarry, a Law Commission advisor, Marion Clifford, explains what the amendment did for the popularity of trust formation. This meant that people um, separating from a relationship, that their assets would be divided equally. People since then um, have used trusts as a mechanism for protecting their own assets when entering into a relationship. Lawyer Ronette Druskovich says parents too use trusts to protect their children's inheritance. Parents are setting up all of their assets and trusts to protect against their children's future spouses because they themselves may have been burned by a past relationship or they think they've, you know, they're going to have quite a bit to pass on and they don't want it actually uh, being divided up between people who aren't their children. Janet Zakoa is passionate about what family trusts can do. She sees them as underwriting the development of a nation. If you protect your assets and you have assets to hand on to the next generation, what that means is the next generation has got a bit of a, a head start. That then enables them to put their money their energies into other factors within the community, to their children's education, perhaps capital into businesses that employ other New Zealanders, maybe into the share market, maybe into bank, uh, bank term deposits so that the banks have got money to lend to people. Basically what you're doing is you are growing a, a wealthy nation and when you build a strong economy that provides for people that are less fortunate than those that have been able to provide well for themselves. Family trusts have endured since at least the 16th century and are considered one of society's essential legal instruments. But there are questions over the way they have sometimes been used.
During the period when the top personal tax rate was six cents higher than the trustee rate, settlors placed rental properties, shares and other investments in trusts and paid the lower trustee tax rate. It was calculated by the Government Commission Tax Working Group that in 2007 alone, such so-called income sheltering cost the government $300 million. And that was for just one year, as the Minister of Revenue, Peter Dunn, explains. If you take that figure over the period, it's, it, you multiply it by the 10 years in effect, you could be looking at something in the order of a $3 billion hole in the budget. And you might say, well, that's a little artificial in that it's money the government didn't lose. It was just money the government didn't get. But then you think about what the government could have done in that time with schools, hospitals, other public services, had it $300 million a year more. Uh, that is a big hole. New Zealand News at 7. Good evening, I'm Warwick Burke. The finance ministers signalled a possible drop in the top tax rate to 33% in a speech... From October the 1st last year, the government aligned the top personal tax rate and trustee tax rate at 33% to stop the income sheltering. But in his third-floor office in Parliament buildings, Labour's finance spokesperson, David Cunliffe, tells me if his party gets back into power, it will look at once more raising the top income tax rate. Yes, that does potentially cause some second-order issues around uh, the trust rate, and we're also considering where's the optimal level uh, to have the trust rate. You wouldn't put the trust rate up to the top tax rate? We haven't made any decision about that yet. Um, couldn't rule that in or out at this stage. Good morning, I'm Penny Mackay from Radio New Zealand here to see John Shewan. The chair of PricewaterhouseCoopers, John Shewan, was part of the tax working group which looked at ways the tax system could be improved and made fairer. He's concerned raising the top tax rate would reinvigorate the use of trusts to minimise tax. Our view would be if a future government increased personal tax rates to say 35%, they should also look very seriously at increasing the trust rate to 35%. Hugely unpopular, but in the context of fairness and a tax system with integrity, uh, an honest politician would want to look closely at that. But using a family trust to reduce tax is not the only way people have exploited a loophole in family trust structures. David Cunliffe is unhappy that some separated parents use trusts to avoid paying the appropriate support for their children. Liable parents transfer income into a trust so they're assessed at a lower income than they actually earn for the purposes of paying child support. So uh, wealthy deadbeat dads put money in a trust, they're assessed by ARD at a lower income and the kids miss out. That's not right. This use of trusts to skew the benefits system has most recently grabbed the headlines in the case of the Working for Families Allowance. It was estimated $10 million a year was going to households with income earning assets and trusts who then applied for the package for low-income families. The next Transmetro Guadalupe connection to Masterton stopping at Waterloo Interchange Across the road from the Wellington Railway Station is the National Office of the Inland Revenue Department. There, the IRD lawyer, Graham Tubb, is unambiguous about what he thinks of the working for families machinations. A very clear example of where it's grossly unfair for social assistance payments of that sort to be paid to someone who, in economic reality, is actually pretty well off. 
But from April the 1st, the government plugged the loophole, as Graham Tubb explains. What the change does is make it much clearer that all of that income in a trust that you're responsible for has to be counted and the income of any entities which that trust controls so that you can no longer have income staying outside the calculation net. PricewaterhouseCoopers John Schuen says the vast majority of people form trusts not to take advantage of state assistance or avoid tax, but for legitimate reasons. The overwhelming reason for the formation of trust has nothing to do with things like social assistance or tax. Most trusts are dealing with things like estates and farms and they're perfectly legitimate and they perform a good job for owners. They've proven over the years to be an extremely good entity to own assets in. And Rainey Collins' lawyer, Ronette Druskovich, says the public doesn't hear about, for instance, the settlor trustees who sell trust assets to repay creditors. If you think about the ones that do make the media, at the moment there's, what, half a dozen key figures who have assets in trust and owe people money and won't pay. The ones who do the right thing don't make the media. All the other people who, who do the right thing um, from a moral perspective. Professional trustee Janet Zakoa says in these times of an ageing population, another reason to have a trust is to get around asset testing, now and in the future. In the next 15 to 20 years, if you rock up to the government, it is very likely that they will say, use your own assets before you come to us, or use what you've got before you are entitled to the full quota of superannuation that we would pay out. I'm pretty sure some of them are probably more well off than my family. <laughs> also, I don't this young student works around her study to minimise how much she has to borrow from the government in student loans. She was amazed to find many of her friends did not have to pay back some of their state assistance because their families were officially too poor. A couple of my friends were saying they had family trusts and they don't have to pay back their living costs, which we get up to about $160 a week and I know these people have very nice houses and they have plenty of money and it meant that they didn't need to have jobs. I didn't want to say much to them but I kind of thought it was not, you know, something a bit funny there. I'm on the financial blog interest.co. The blog's editor, Bernard Hickey, is scathing that trusts, even used legitimately, allow settlers to manipulate their financial affairs, often at the expense of other New Zealanders. It's perfectly legal, you know, and it's and for, for those people in in policy making circles, because they all do it themselves, um, they justify it. But for those people who in future, and I'm thinking the next ten to twenty years, who will have to pay much higher PAYE tax, when they see a group of people not helping to pay for society, that makes them very grumpy. And um, it's a question we will have to confront again and again in the years to come because of the, the stresses on our budget caused by the demographic bulge that's going through our system. So is tax minimisation and accessing state assistance a bit like the notorious underarm bowl, within the rules but of questionable morality? One of the more common claims on the state is for the residential care subsidy. New Zealanders who do not have sufficient money or assets to pay for their care when they get old can have it paid by the taxpayer. This man has paid taxes all his working life and has had a family trust since the 1990s. Will he apply for the residential care subsidy if and when the time comes? I hadn't given much thought to that, but I suppose, in a way, yes, that would protect would be protection for the family, uh, that they wouldn't 
be spending all our ill-gotten gains to um, look after us. But he was less certain about creating an extra burden on other taxpayers. Mm, I, I don't know. I think that um, we'd like to pay our own way. We've uh, worked hard all our life and uh, I think as far as possible we could pay our way. It is a fine line, but it doesn't present any moral dilemmas to Janet Zakoa. New Zealanders are asked to comply voluntarily with the tax laws that we have, and most New Zealanders do that. At the same time, our legislation provides for legitimate tax planning, and trusts are often used in legitimate tax planning. So I don't see why an individual should be told they've got to pay their tax and play by those laws and then not be able to avail themselves of the other laws which give them the benefits of asset protection through trusts. An Auckland barrister who specialises in trust work, Anthony Grant, agrees, but also has a warning about the future. There's no reason why, in terms of conventional trust law, that shouldn't be treated as absolutely legitimate. If, on the other hand, the state says, we don't think that's fair overall because the country's too strapped for cash or whatever, and we are going to make these new rules for trusts and we're going to change them. Labor's David Cunliffe signals the rules may well change if he becomes finance minister. We need to get a reality check. We are in the middle of a dire recession. The government is skint. People are suffering because the government increasingly cannot afford to fund basic services, let alone recover from a devastating earthquake. I have very little patience with those who brag about how, quote, tax efficient their affairs are. Bernard Hickey also sees trouble ahead. What income tax rates are people going to be paying in 10, 20 years' time when the baby boomers are loading down on the, uh, the government's finances, paying for all those pensions and that health care? And it's the people who are graduating now and going into the workforce now who are looking at, the, at 20, 30 years down the track and wondering who's going to pay those taxes when those costs come in. Is it going to be someone on a PAYE salary, old muggins, or is it going to be the really rich with all those assets? Ah, no, they're in family trusts. The Inland Revenue Department lawyer, Graham Tubb, says the department is increasingly focusing on how trusts are used. The area which the Commissioner is really quite worried about is the ability of some insolvent persons to ring-fence, as you put it, assets into a trust so that they're not available in the event of bankruptcy or insolvency. And I guess other things, if you think also about child support payments, it's possible by the use of trusts to sequester your assets so that your income is reduced and your obligation to pay child support is reduced. So in all, all of those areas, just for starters and without mentioning student loan repayments, it's possible to use trusts to affect not only your income tax liability but also increase your entitlement to or reduce your obligation to make these social payments. So that coupled with the creditor protection issue is a matter of considerable concern for us. But it's not easy for the department to keep track. There's no central registry of family trusts and in October, gift duty will be abolished and with it at least some of the ability to monitor trust operations. Gift duty and family trusts are linked like this. Any gift over a certain amount incurs gift duty, so our example set laws, Jim and Mary Bloggs, will be able to put their assets in a trust only slowly, as Wellington lawyer Ronette Druskovich explains. Each of the set laws, which in this case is the husband and wife, are entitled to gift 
$27,000 per annum or a total of $54,000 per annum. So the gifting will occur annually until the trust fully owns the property. So if the blog's house is worth $540,000, it will take 10 years to fully place in the family trust. The returns the blogs file each year with IRD noting this progress allows the department to know their trust exists and get some idea of what it's doing. But after October, this overview goes. Bernard Hickey thinks it's time the so-called Norway solution was introduced. Everyone in Norway must declare what their personal income is for that year, what their net worth is for that year, and how much tax they paid. And it's up there on the internet for everyone to see. And it means that there is nowhere to hide. PricewaterhouseCoopers John Schuen says what's needed is robust and well-designed tax policy that disincentivizes people to use trusts unfairly. People will, will act according to the incentives they're given. People aren't silly. You know? And if you're running along the road, if there's a hill, you'll probably try and go around it if you can. And tax is just the same. In 2005, there were some very, very poor design changes made to working for families, which incentivised a lot of people to, to use trust and other entities in an abusive way. And if you have a well-functioning economy and a good tax system, you won't have a, a significant problems. The Minister of Revenue, Peter Dunn, who says gift duty is going because it costs more to administer than it brings in, is confident there are enough teeth in current legislation to prevent the worst abuse. The Social Security legislation has strong enough what we call look-through provisions to actually find out what's going on there. And if people are manipulating the system in that way, then to uh, say, well, hang on, you know, this, is, this is not appropriate. The second thing is we already have similar provisions in respect of people who seek to minimise their income uh, either for working for families' entitlements or for child, uh, child support or in some cases even student allowances and student um, assistance. And in each of those areas we've got very strong powers to say we're going to look through your affairs and see basically what you've got and what you haven't got. So again, the ability to sort of tuck things away in a back corner and say, well, they're not mine anymore, uh, is being minimised. And courts too seem to be getting tougher on family trusts. In a paper for the Law Society, the Auckland barrister Anthony Grant says there are now about 19 ways courts can get into trusts and remove the value of their assets. The IRD's Graham Tubb says a fundamental change of thinking is what the department is seeking. What we'd really like to achieve over time is, a, I guess, a change of behaviours around compliance. The idea that you should be free to minimise tax at the cost of everyone else in the community. We'd like to think that people would take a fair view of what they would see as their obligations. Trusts can be seen as the focus of a pincer movement. On one flank, increasing IRD focus and strengthening government policy, and on the other, an official review of trust law. Some of that review by the Law Commission surrounds the Trustee Act. The Law Commissioner, George Tanner, explains what's wrong with it. It says absolutely nothing about trustees' duties. It doesn't even define what a trust is. It helps with some of the practical problems around trust administration, but it doesn't define what the duties of a trustee are. And it's been suggested that it would be a good thing to have an Act of Parliament that set out, in plain language, exactly what the duties of a trustee are. Most trustees wouldn't know much uh, about them. Evidently it's the way to go, so 
I'm doing it and I've had no problems with it so far. This young man is probably typical of a great many trustees in New Zealand. I had a couple of houses and uh, my father rang me up when I was overseas and he advised me to put into a family trust from his friend who's a lawyer and, um, and he takes care of all the family trust stuff. Yeah. Are you a trustee of the trust, do you know? I think I am now since I've been back in the country and that. Do you know what the obligations of the trustees are? What they should do to keep the trust going? Um, I don't think they do anything, so uh, it's just sitting there in the safe box, you know. Trustees make the decisions about how the trust will operate and they must make those decisions unanimously. Ross Holmes is an Auckland barrister and author of a book on sham trusts. Those that the Court of Appeal ruled last year are actually created to deceive authorities. Mr Holmes believes an astonishing 95% of trusts are probably not operated properly. And the reason that situation has arisen is probably 95% plus of trusts are formed with zero running instructions. And quite frequently the trustees are not even given a copy of the trust deed. Generally that's kept by the lawyers or accountants who form the trust. So if you have no idea what you're doing, it's inevitable you're going to make mistakes. And Ross Holmes says one trustee repeatedly making a decision without consulting others can put the whole validity of the trust at risk. I saw a trust created by one of the statutory trustee companies. Uh, they let their, my new clients um, hold the checkbook, uh, told them they could use it without any consultation with the statutory trustee company, uh, except when they were preparing the accounts at the end of each year. Now that's shocking. John Brown is another Auckland barrister, writer and trust specialist of 30 years' experience. He says there's been a staggering increase in trust litigation in the last decade. I think that the number of court cases concerning trusts, I think it's gone up about four to 500 per cent, and the cases are a lot more sophisticated. The issues being raised for the court to consider are far more sophisticated, and I see this as just the beginning. As beneficiaries become more aware of their rights and trustees are going to need to improve their act. The Law Commissioner, George Tanner, says the review of trust law will ask the question, are the mechanisms robust enough? Do they enable the government to get the revenue that it says it's entitled to and make sure that people contribute to society and whether the courts are making a good enough job of looking at some of the uses to which trusts are put. And he welcomes any submissions to the Commission's investigation as they try to work out why New Zealanders are so wedded to trusts and what's the best way forward. Why do we have more trusts per head of population than any other country in the Western world, so it seems? Nothing like this number in the United States. Why is that? Is it a, a kind of deep-seated suspicion or fear or mistrust on the part of New Zealanders of their governments, that they feel the need to protect their assets in some way from the constant fluctuation in government policy. I don't know the answer to that. I'd be, I'd be fascinated to get responses. We'd love to hear what people really, you know, what, why, why do they do it? Why do you do it? That insight was written and presented by Penny Mackay. It was produced by Philip Tolley. Technical production by Leanne Smith.